Great job, Brenda. <laughs> you, you all are nervous now if you're going to get called on to read uh, through the book of Judges over the next several months. But man, that was great. That was really good. We're actually going to go through the whole chapter of Judges today. Um, Brenda read the first 21 verses. We're going to go through all of chapter 1 today. But the first 21 verses really give a, uh, uh, really give a, a snapshot of what we're going to see uh, in this overview chapter of chapter 1. Really, chapters 1 and 2 are really an overview of what we're going to experience in the, in the coming uh, weeks and months as we're going through this. But um, as we jump in, um, this is what came to my mind uh, this, this past week. You know, several years ago, I had the opportunity um, to go spelunking with one of the classes here at our, at our school. Uh, and now, for those of you that don't know what, what spelunking is, it's, it's exploring a cave, right? Uh, now, when I went, uh, I didn't know what to expect. I was told what to bring, right? Headlamp and shoes and clothes. You really don't mind getting just completely filthy, but I'd never gone spelunking before. Uh, in my mind, caving or caves were just these things in my mind. There were big entrances, and you just kind of walked into them, and you, you kind of looked around and just kind of explored. And it was kind of dark, but, but you could still kind of see around. Um, what I wasn't expecting is that we were going to drive a few hours, uh, then go drive into the middle middle of the woods that is in the middle of nowhere, and then get off this bus, walk down this, this long path to find this two-foot by three-foot metal grate that was just like in the ground that had a padlock on it and was bolted to the ground. So we had to unlock the lock and then just kind of swing this thing up over the ground, and we just kind of, okay, get in, and we just kind of climbed into this hole in the ground uh, on our hands and knees. And in the first half of this, this exploration, we're, uh, we're bent over, we're on our hands and knees, we're crawling, sometimes we're through waist-deep water. Uh, now, it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I, honestly, I had a blast. Uh, but, but one of the most impactful moments came when we entered this, this huge uh, cavern. Uh, we had probably been exploring for maybe an hour or, or so by this point. Uh, and so we were, we were deep into this, this cave, deep underground. Absolutely no light uh, was entering this cave whatsoever. And so all of us entered into this, this chamber and, and we were told, okay, go find a, a safe place to just kind of sit. And, and once everybody was settled, uh, the, the, the guide who was leading us said, okay, now everybody turn off their headlamps. And, and so we just sat there in complete silence, but, but also in complete darkness. Now, I've been in dark rooms before, right? I've been in dark rooms before. I've gone camping, and we've been out in the woods camping before, but I've in that moment, I've never felt, and it's the only way I could say it, felt, I never felt darkness like I did in, in just those 30 seconds or a minute, however long we just sat there. Because we also told everybody, just be quiet. Don't make a, don't make a sound. Just be in that moment. And so it, it's, it's hard to explain if, if you've never experienced something like that before. But I, again, I don't know how else to say it other than I, I could feel the oppressiveness of the darkness. Like, it's like I could feel it like just wrapping around me. Uh, it was unnerving. It was unnerving. It was unsettling. Like I knew there were 20, 20 25 people in that room, but you, you could not, I mean, they told you, okay, wave your hand in front of you. Like nothing, like you could just see nothing. It was unsettling. And I was thinking about that, that experience this past week as I was once again just reading through the, the book of Judges. The book of Judges, which we're going to be, like I said, we're going to be in this for the next several months. 
Um, it's a heavy book, right? You, you probably even glean some of that just from the, okay, so people's thumbs and toes are getting cut off, right? Like, okay, it's, it's a heavy book. It's, it's a picture of, of what takes place when the human heart is king. And, and here's the problem with that. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, I think many of us have, have probably heard that verse before. We've, we've referenced it actually quite often here. Many, many of us, if not most of us in this room here this morning, would, would agree with that verse. But, but I also don't think we fully grasp the fullness of what that verse is saying about the state of the human heart. Right? Before I went into that cave, I, I had an idea of what I thought darkness was. But it wasn't until I sat in a, in a room that was completely absent of, of light that I, that I got this fuller picture of, oh no, that's what darkness is. Like scripture says our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. I think we, we have a grasp of that. I think Judges helps us get a fuller picture of that. Uh, like Judges is a picture, like I said, of what happens when the human heart is enthroned as king. The book of Judges actually ends with these words in Judges 21-25 that says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in, in his own eyes. Now when that's how the book ends, <laughs> then we can be sure that what's about to come before it is going to be pretty dark. And, and Judges, if you've ever read through Judges, Judges is a, it's a disturbing book. It's a disturbing book in the sense of what is taking place in Israel. It, it's really a, a, a book that, that outlines Israel's complete failure to obey God and to walk according to his law. Judges is a, is a warning then to us, as we read it here, of, of what happens when we compromise. It's a warning to us of what happens when we flirt with the world. It's a warning to us of what happens when we reject and forget God. It's a warning to us of what happens when we're, when we're in the driver's seat. And not only is, it's not like where you're saying, God, you can be in the passenger seat. It's, it's a warning to us of when we're in the driver's seat and we try to kick God out of the car as it's moving. And, and yet at the same time, as, as dark as Judges is, Judges is also a very beautiful book. It's a very beautiful book in that, in that the mercy and the grace of God shines through every page. Like, yes, Judges concludes with saying that, that there was no king in Israel and that, and, that, and that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But Judges, as we're seeing here this morning, it opens with God's favor actually resting on the tribe of Judah, a tribe of Israel that would one day bring forth the great king of kings, the great king of all creation, the great king who would rescue his people from their sins, and this king would lead them to victory over the enemy of sin and death. And so, yes, Judges is dark, but it doesn't mean that God is absent. In fact, God's mercy, as I said, is seen on every page. The hope for humanity is seen not in ourselves, as we'll see, but, but it's seen in him. And so let, let's jump in. Uh, let's first familiarize ourselves with where we are in, in the story of Scripture. Where, where does Judges kind of fit in the, in the picture here of God's redemptive history? So, so Judges 1, as you heard Brenda read, begins with the death of Joshua. 
Sorry, so following the death of Joshua. So, so we want to go back just a little bit here just to help place us where we are, right? Um, so, so back in the book of Exodus, Israel is enslaved by the Egyptians, right? So God comes to a man named Moses and he empowers him and says, okay, I'm sending you to Pharaoh who is over the, the, the kingdom of Egypt that's impressing my people. And I'm sending you to Pharaoh to demand the release of my people, right? Let my people go. Set Israel free. So Pharaoh refuses. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, Pharaoh refuses. And so God flexes his power, flexes his might, flexes his sovereignty over all things, over all creation. You have these 10 plagues that, that God unleashes on the, the, the people of, of Egypt to reveal he's the God of all gods, right? He's the king of all kings, right? After that final plague, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh relents. Pharaoh lets God's people go. All right, so God leads his people to freedom from enslavement. And, and as he's leading them um, uh, into uh, this, this freedom, he, he gives them this promise. He gives his people this promise. And it's this promise of, of land. It's a, it's a promise of, of a, a place in which they will dwell, that, that they will be his people and he will be their God. And I'm going to give you this land where I'm going to establish you as my people and you're going to be this light to the nations as you sit and as you live underneath my reign and rule. And so this is what God's giving them as he brings them out of enslavement. He gives them in the book of Exodus, he gives them the law, right? So basically the law is given to them to reveal to them, here's how you are to live. Here's how you're to, to live, which is going to lead you into joy. It's going to reveal then to the surrounding pagan nations that you are a set-apart people that are living underneath my reign and rule. And so that's what, that's what God is giving them. That's what God is covenanting with them to do. That's what God is promising to do. Now, Israel, as we, as we read through uh, the first few books of the Bible, the Old Testament, Israel fails. They, they fail to obey time and time again. Um, uh, as they're brought out of Egypt, they, they complain often. And, and God eventually says to this generation, of which he freed, says to this generation, listen, um, you're not going to enter this, this promised land. But instead, you're going to wander in the wilderness. You're going to die out, and it's going to be your children. It's going to be this next generation I'm going to start over with to some degree, right? And they're going to enter into this land because of your disobedience and because of your rebellion. And so, so after time in the wilderness, this, this older generation, they, they die off, and now their children are now set and ready to be led into this land that God had promised to give them. However, Moses is still alive. He's an old man at this point, and God says to him, even Moses, Moses, Listen, you're not going to be the one to, to lead my people into this land. But instead, after the death of Moses, God appoints a man named Joshua. Joshua that we heard of in verse 1 of Judges 1. God appoints Joshua to lead his people, lead his people into this land. But to go into this, this promised land that God had given his people, they first have to drive out. God over and over commands the, his people, you've got to drive out all these pagan nations that are inhabiting it. And, and so as you read through then the book of Joshua, which comes right before Judges, it's a history really of Israel's conquests to inhabit the land that God had given them, that God had promised to give them. 
But the book of, at the end of the book of Joshua, near the end of his life now, it's evident that, that though they have obeyed God in many areas, there are still many pagan nations that are still needing to be driven out so, so that Israel can establish themselves as a set-apart kingdom and then be this light to the surrounding nations of God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy. And so Joshua, at the end of Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua, gathers all the tribes of Israel, gathers all the leaders together, gathers all the officers, and he gives them this final charge to obey God. He knows his life is coming to an end. He still knows there's much work to be done. And so he gives them this final charge to them, right? Like he knows God has been very clear with you. God has been very clear with all of them that they need to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. He's saying, do not compromise on this. Do not allow them to remain. Drive them out. Why? Why is that? These, these pagan nations that were, that were inhabiting the land, the Canaanite people, they, they were an incredibly wicked and incredibly morally corrupt nation. Uh, they, they sacrificed children to their gods in order to appease them. It was a very corrupt and evil and wicked nation. And, and so God knew that this, to, 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 to allow them to remain in the land while Israel intermingles with them, he, God knew this, this would only corrupt his people. This would only corrupt his people as he's called them to live. And this this holy nation, this set-apart people that's living underneath his reign and his rule, who had then, the the purpose of Israel was to be this this light to these nations. The way in which they lived under God's law, God's reign, would reveal to these pagan nations the, 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 the supremacy of the God of Israel and would draw them to the light of who he is. And so that was God's plan. Actually, the driving out of these nations was not an act necessarily of just wrath, although God's wrath was in that towards sin, but it was also an act of mercy toward them to say, as I establish this nation, it's going to draw you to who I am. So, so God gives clear instructions to Israel. Drive them out, right? Don't compromise. Joshua's giving them this charge. Remember what God has said. And so Joshua lays out as clear as he can to his people at the final chapter of Joshua, Joshua 24. Do not compromise. He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fa- that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so now Judges opens with the time that's now following the death of Joshua. And the question now is out there, and it really kind of opens up the book, right? Will Israel, will God's people serve the Lord in faithfulness or will they compromise? Will they be disobedient? This is going to be the same question that we're going to be pressed with throughout our study throughout this book. Will we walk in obedience and faithfulness or will we compromise? Uh, And maybe I'll say even a little bit more directly, will you be obedient to God or disobedient? Right? Because there is no middle ground. Compromise, we think, is that middle ground. There is no middle ground. We'll talk about this at the end today, but, but, but compromise is disobedience. And, and so if I was going to hang uh, this first chapter and, and really to some degree the book of Judges on kind of one question, it would be this. Will, will you obey God who has proven his faithfulness and proven his trustworthiness or will you disobey by following the God of this world? Right? Our, our hearts, Scripture says, are persistently deceitful, sick and unfaithful 
And, and because of this, because of, of who we are in, by our nature, we, we must then turn and submit to God who is persistently trustworthy, holy, and faithful to save and lead us. All right, so, so the book of Judges opens by asking a question. Will Israel obey? Will they choose to serve the Lord their God and be faithful? Will they put away the false gods and serve the Lord in faithfulness or are they going to compromise? See, chapters one and two are going to give us kind of an overview of, of Israel's response to that question. We're going to see in these couple chapters even then the, the, the trustworthiness of God, but we're also going to then begin to sadly see Israel's decline into moral failure and into disobedience. Ultimately, what Judges is going to reveal to us is the, the deceitful state of our own hearts, the destruction that, that comes from our disobedience. And, and then it's going to leave us, though, then asking, okay, so then where's our hope? And, and so how do we see the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God in Judges 1? How do we see God? Where, where is he jumping off the pages that, that would show us and reveal to us, here's how we respond to him? Well, here's the first thing we're going to see this morning that we need to respond to. First thing we see is that God has already won the battle, so trust in him. God has already won the battle, so our response, so trust in him. So the first nine verses of Judges begin positively. So, so verse one begins, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So Joshua had been leading them. Joshua has died. So Israel's asking, okay, God, we're going to keep going. Who's going to lead us? Who's going to lead us into battle? To which God responds in verse two. Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So verses three through nine then outline Judah's obedience and, and, and Judah's trust in God's victory. Judah teams up with his brother Simeon and the, the two tribes, they wage war against the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites with the capture of a specific king that's outlined here, Adonai Bezek. Now you might've noticed that when they, they captured him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, um, if you've never read Judges, uh, that's mild. That's mild. I'm, I'm not kidding. That's mild for what we're about to read later on in Judges. If that's gross to you, then buckle up for chapters 3 and 4. Um, but this was a picture here of this capture of this king, of God's victory, his authority over, over all. Well, what's God say again in verse 2? Listen, he says, I have given the land <laughs> into his hand. The victory was already certain because God had promised it. All right, before, a, before any war is waged, any battle is fought, God already says, the victory is yours. Just go take it. Right? The, even the wicked pagan king, Adonai Bezek, took notice of, God, of the God of Israel's victory, overwhelming victory, when he recognizes God's justice in verse 7. He, he says, and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. See, God had promised victory to Israel. All they had to do to experience that victory was to obey him and to trust him. God had given them the land. It was theirs. It was theirs. They just had to walk in obedience and trust God. Uh, a few weeks ago, we sat down with our kids to watch um, 
We watched the final inning of Game 7 of the 2000, some of you guys already know where I'm going, right? The game, final inning of Game 7 of the 2016 World Series between the Cubs and the Indians. Our, our, our kids, when, they, when the Cubs won in 2016, they were a lot younger. And so uh, raising them in our home, they, they were like, you need, to, you need to watch this, right? You gotta, this is history that was made, right? So we, we found it like on YouTube. Like, I'm going to watch this, this final inning where they, they finally won after 108 years, right? So now, now here's what's crazy about that when we were watching it. Um, Amy and I knew who won the game, right? We know... We know the Cubs are going to win. Um, we're watching a, a recording of history of events that have already been played out, and yet we are still nervous watching it, right? We we're nervous watching it. it. Like, I know how that final hit's going to go. It's going to be a little bloop hit to Chris Bryant at third base, who's going to throw it to Rizzo for that final out. I know how they're also going to be celebrating as soon as they make that final out, and yet, like, we're watching it, and I'm like, why am I tense? Like, I'm tense here watching this as if, like, the outcome's going to change somehow. Like, do, do, we, do we fully grasp the reality that we worship a God who doesn't just know about past events or know about future events, but that we worship a God who reigns supreme over all of history, both past, present, and future? Amen. Like, as one pastor has said, um, uh, tomorrow isn't a place that God knows about but a place that God is and reigns over. Like, do, do we grasp that the, that, that the book that we hold in our, our hands right now not only outlines the, the history of God's redemptive plan, but, but as we've even sung today, like, like, this book speaks to a coming day of Christ's victory over sin and death and, and speaks to it in such a way that it's, it's, it's so certain as if it's already been, been occurring or has already occurred. Like, like we sing a song here often called Praise to King. There's a line in that song that's taken right from 1 Corinthians 15 where it says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, we still feel the sting of death today, don't we? Like, surely, if you've lived for any amount of time, you, you felt the sting of death of someone that you know about, love and care for. Like there is a sting to it today. Absolutely, we feel the sting of that. But the, the certainty of that text, the certainty of what we, we, what we sing is that because of Christ's victory, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, we can sing and rejoice because we know there is coming a day when death will be no more. And that the sting will be gone. And so we can sing in faith as if it's already happened. That's the certainty. We, we walk in with our God. That he's won the battle. So trust him. The second thing that we see from our text today that we need to respond to is that, is that God's blessing rests on those who walk in obedience. God's blessing rests on those who walk in obedience. And in the next section, verses 10 through 15, there's three names that are highlighted. Uh, Caleb, uh, Othniel, and, and Aksa. Uh, we first read or hear of Caleb in the book of Numbers when, when Moses, he, he sends 12 men to spy out the land of Canaan, right? So in, in Numbers, and what's going on there, it's like, okay, they know this land's been promised to them. And so Moses is saying, we need to kind of spy it out and see 
How fortified is it? What's it look like? Like we need to kind of get a game plan together so we know what we're going into, right? So they, they, send, they, they spend, send 12 spies into the land to, to bring back a report. So these, these 12 spies go out. They're there for 40 days in the land. They come back with this report of, of this land that's filled with abundance. It's an abundant land. And yet 10 of the 12 spies believe that the people are, are too well fortified. They're too large in number to overcome. So, so 10 of the 12 spies doubt the might and the power of God to overcome their enemies, right? They're overwhelmed. They're walking in fear, not in belief or trust. Only two of the 12 spy, spies seek to convince the people to, to trust God. No, no, God will fight for them. God will give us the victory. Over, only two men try to convince the people of Israel, no, let's walk in obedience. This is what God has called us to this is going to result in God's deliverance, God's blessing over our lives. And the two men who seek to convince the people are Joshua and Caleb. Othniel is also a man mentioned here in this section. Othniel, we'll get to in chapter 3. He's the first judge actually we'll get to. And he was a good judge. He was a good judge. Not much is said about Othniel, but what is said is significant. Scripture says the Spirit of God was upon him. He was a good judge. He was a good leader. Again, I probably should say this, but when we think of judge, judges, don't, we don't want to think courtroom. Uh, the judges here were, were uh, I've heard people explain it, more like military leaders, right? That God would raise up to defend and to fight for his people. And so Othniel was a, a good judge. He was a, a good leader. He was one who walked in obedience, which would result, as we'll get to in chapter 3, in Israel's deliverance and, and decades of prosperity in the people of, for the people of God. So Caleb is a man who trusts God. Othniel is a man who trusts God. Aksa here is the third name that's mentioned. She's Caleb's daughter who's been given in marriage to Othniel because of his leadership, because of his obedience to God. Now what's significant about this section is that, is that the author, I, I believe, is actually attempting to paint a picture of what comes to those who walk in obedience. Trying to paint a picture of this is what God has called us to Right? And here's what will result. It will result in, in, in blessing. Caleb was obedient to the, to the Lord when he spied out the land. He, he, he trusted in God's provision, God's deliverance. Othniel is mentioned here. He was a man who was a, a good leader, a good judge. He walked in obedience and said the Spirit of the Lord was resting upon him. Othniel and, and, and Aksa's marriage was in a picture of God's design for his people in that, in that moment, right? Like God had specifically warned his people uh, of the dangers of any intermarriage that would take place with the pagan nations because he knew it was going to bring corruption into their lives. It's going to be a command that we're going to soon see the Israelites fail to obey, which resulted not in blessing, but in moral decay. But I believe what the author is revealing here is, is, is that blessing is coming to those who walk in obedience. Psalm 1 opens by saying this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, the, of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then verse 3 says, here's the result. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he, he prospers. Now, we need to get out of, our, out of our mind in this moment, maybe in a, an Americanized understanding of prosperity. We're not talking about riches. We're not talking about the abundance of material possessions. This is not a code to unlock everything I want selfishly. If I just obey, now, God, you have to give me 
these things. This is not what scripture talks about when it talks about blessing. That's a shallow and insufficient understanding of the blessing we ultimately find in our God. But what I would argue from scripture is that God's blessing to us is as we walk in obedience, it results in joy. It results in an unshakable peace. It, it results in, I would say, fruitfulness in life. It, it results in a life that flourishes, a life that's stable, that is productive, that God's favor rests on you, that is, that is steady even in the face of suffering. See, a, 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 a prosperity gospel way of looking at that is like, okay, if I'm obedient, then I shouldn't face difficulty or trial. We'd never see anything like that in all of Scripture. Anyone who ever preaches, teaches that is, 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 is a heretic. That is incorrect. We will face suffering. We will face trials in life. But, but God's blessing means that even as we face it, we can walk with joy, with hope, with stability because God is with us. That's his blessing, his presence resting on us. So he's, he's, God has created life, has he not? And, and with it, he's, he's given us boundaries by which we are called to live, boundaries that, that when we obey, like lead us into joy, lead us into that blessing, not away from it. As parents, don't we put boundaries around our children? Rules of the home that are, as good parents, hopefully not, not meant to oppress them, but because we know better than them. And we know that, that the boundaries that we place in our homes, that these rules of the home, if followed, they're going to lead them to flourish in this life. It's going to lead them into blessing and prosperity. Right? Has anyone ever seen a, a child that has no boundaries? Right? Ever seen a kid that has no rules, no consequences? Right? They, they, that child in that moment is thinking they're living their best life. That's what they think. Oh, this is amazing. I can do whatever I want and no one says no and I get whatever I want. And they think this is life. We look at that and do we not mourn for that? We mourn because we know what's about to happen. We know that their life is going to end in destruction. Right? It's not going to lead. They will not lead to a flourishing life. See, God's law is meant to shape us and mold us into God's good design for us. We, we need to have then the same heart that the psalmist had in Psalm 119 when he, when he thought and meditated upon God's law. He, says, he said, your, your testimonies are my delight. They are my, love this word, they are my counselors. Like they're, they're leading me into what the fullness of, of life is and how it's found. Do, do you view God's law that way? Are they, are they counselors to you? Are they speaking truth into your life, which then leads you into the blessing that God has for you as you walk in obedience? Last thing we'll see from our text today, though, is, is that God is near to those who live on mission. God is near to those who live on mission. In verses 16 through 26, we see the continued conquests of, of the tribe of Judah, leading God's people into the land that's promised to them. But there's one phrase I want to just kind of key in on here for a few, a few moments. It's, it's a phrase the author uses twice. One in reference to Judah's o- obedience and, and another one has been, it's used in reference to the house of Joseph's obedience as they lived as God called them to live. So we see this repeated phrase in verse 19 and at the end of verse 22. It says that the Lord was with them. The Lord was with them. With is the Hebrew word et, which means near. It means near. And so as Judah and as Joseph, as those tribes were, were walking in obedience on mission, 
the, the response, the result was that God was near them, was with them, alongside of them. The mission God had called them to was not an easy one. Right? The enemies that they faced were, were many. They were, they were strong. The enemy was well fortified. They oftentimes knew going into battle they were going to be outnumbered. And so from a human perspective, as they were looking at what was in front of them, it seemed as the, as the challenge or the charge God gave them was just insurmountable. And yet through it all, as they would trust God, as they walked in obedience on mission, God was with them. He was He was near. Does this sound at all familiar to us today? What is, what is our mission as Christ followers today? What has Jesus commissioned the church to do? Right? Matthew 28, 19 makes it really clear. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so, so how many nations are we to make disciples of? All nations, all people groups. What are we to teach them? All that Jesus has commanded. Okay, there's over 17,000 different people groups in the world today. Over 7,000 of those 17,000 people groups still remain unreached in very difficult and very hostile areas of the world. However, according to the mission Jesus has given his church, it seems to mean that we, we then need to be zealously focused on reaching those unreached people groups if we're going to be obedient to Jesus' words to his church. So that means if we're going to reach those unreached people groups, that means there's going to be risk involved. It's going to require resources. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require people willing to go. It's going to require people willing to send. That, that task seems to me, from a human perspective, difficult. The enemy of the faith is not going to just roll over. This commission from a human perspective seems insurmountable. And yet, what's the promise that Jesus gives in verse 20, Matthew 28? And behold, I am, say those next three words out loud, with you always to the end of the age. The question Judges is going to ask you is, will you obey Or will you compromise? You see, I said at the beginning here, compromised obedience is disobedience. That's that's what we begin to see in the remaining verses of chapter 1. We begin to see this cycle begin to emerge. We'll see it more clearly next week in chapter 2. But Israel compromises. They don't don't obey God. We we, we started to see the breakdown even in verse 21 that we heard read this morning. When it says, but the people of Benjamin, this is another tribe of Israel, did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Then we begin to see that refrain over and over again as the chapter concludes. Verse 27, Manasseh, they're another tribe. They didn't drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim, another tribe, did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And so what happens in verses 21 and 29 and in verse 30 and 31 and 33, we see another repeated phrase that's in clear violation of God's command. It says that Israel lived among the Canaanites. They intermingled to such a degree that, as we're going to see as judges unfolds, Israel no longer looks like a people set apart by God to be that light to the nations, but they forget their God. They forget what God even looks like, and they begin to look just like the pagan nations that are around them. Now, 
Judges isn't a manual given to us as the church today to, okay, let's build the compound, right? Let's, let's, okay, we got to force all the unbelievers out, right? We can't, even, we can't even mix with them, right? We can't even see them, right? That's, that's not what this is talking about. The, the, the methods God has used to reach the nations have changed as God's plan of redemption has unfolded. In this moment of redemptive history, God was calling Israel, right? You are my people. Be that light which would now draw the nations to him. I'm going to set you apart as a holy nation, a people that is going to draw. But we today now, as redemptive history continues to unfold, we today are commissioned by King Jesus to go, to go with the light of the gospel, seeking by the power of the Spirit to draw the nations to the glory of Christ. The mission still remains. But what we need to take from this, though, is that in order for us to reach the nations, in order for us to be on mission, you can't look like the world. We cannot go into the world calling on people, come, repent, renounce the insufficiency of the world. Right? You, you need to look to Jesus to save you, to cling by faith to the beauty and glory of Jesus and to reveal through his glorious gospel if we're looking as though we're finding our hope and our peace, and our identity, and our comfort in the things of this world and not in Christ. So, so what, what should be different then? All right? What should be different between a Christ follower and an unbeliever? What, what should be markedly different? Because you might be thinking, like, okay, like, well, I'm, I'm a kind person. Like, I'm a kind person. I, I think I'm, a, I'm pleasant to be around, is that enough? Is that what differentiates me between uh, a, a believer and unbeliever? Like, I, I'm kind? Like, but here's the thing as I think that I've known many kind atheists who are very pleasant to be around. I've got neighbors around me that are not believers, but you know what? They love their family. They work hard. I enjoy talking with them. So, okay, so what's different then? What's different? We're to, if we're to not look like the world, like what's different? Well, what if this? Let me give us just a few things to think through. What if, what if we loved not just those who are lovable, but loved our enemies? That's gospel-driven. That's a spirit-empowered love. Right? What, what if we faced suffering with joy? What if we faced death with hope? That's gospel-driven, spirit-empowered hope. What if we sacrificed to such a degree that this, maybe the Spirit prompted us to say maybe no to the bigger house or no to the newer car or no maybe to the longer vacation or no to the fatter 401k because our giving was just so radical because we desire to see the gospel transform our community just as it's transformed us. That, that we desire to see the gospel get out to those 7,000 unreached people groups that have never even heard of Jesus. That'd be different. That's a gospel-driven, spirit-empowered generosity. What if we were sending people away from the comfort of home, the familiarity of family and friends to plant churches in needy areas of the country, needy areas of the world? What if, what if we didn't complain when things don't go the way we think they should? I know that seems so simple, but isn't that, isn't that counter-cultural? What, what if we didn't live with a me-centered mentality but, but actively sought to serve one another and seek out their best interest. That's a gospel-driven, spirit-empowered service. What if we shaped the rhythms of our home, the rhythms of our family, 
to center around and show the importance of the gospel of Jesus and to show the importance and the significance of the gathering together of God's people. What if the church wasn't just something we do on the weekends, but something we are? What if we loved the Lord our God with all our heart and all our strength and all our might? What if we loved our neighbor even though it inconvenienced us? As I wrap up here this morning, Judges is going to cause us to come face to face with hard questions. Hard questions, but ultimately it's going to come to this question. Will we obey or will we compromise? And what I mean by compromise is it's easy to say I'll love my neighbor. Yeah, I'll do that but only to a point. <laughs> like, I'll love you until it gets harder or until you, until you really start needing stuff from me, right? It's easy to serve in the life of the church until it's like, well, this is out of my control. I don't want to do that. It's easy to give as long as we don't have to feel the, 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 the sting that comes sometimes from, from sacrificial giving. That, that's what I mean by compromise. It's like, I'll, I'll do it up, up to here. So like, God wants me here, all right, I'll get here. Like, is that good? Like, this is, this is I think, the temptation we often face in the life of our, our church, right? Compromised obedience is still disobedience. And so this is the hard question we've got to come face to face with. This is what we begin to see Israel do, right? God says, drive them out. Well, what do we see? We don't have time to get through it, but they say, well, we're not going to drive them out, but we'll, leave, we'll put them into forced labor. That's compromise. That's disobedience. And ultimately, it resulted in the nations not coming to see the glory of Christ because they were failing to obey. There is no in-between. Compromised obedience is disobedience. And so our reaction to that statement should be, I need a Savior. If God's called me to be way over here, we should right away recognize I can't get there. <laughs> we should recognize I can't get there. I need a Savior. If your first reaction, though, is, okay, let's get to work right? Here's, here's my game plan. I'm going to try to get harder. Uh, all right, this is what I'm going to do to make that work for me. Like, then you are not believing the gospel. You are not, you are not looking to Christ. You're looking to yourself to be your savior. The law was not meant to save, but it was given to reveal that you need saving. The book of Judges, as dark as it can get, and it gets dark, still has beauty, still has hope within it, because as you read through it, it points outside of itself to this need of redemption, need for salvation, need for a savior. Judges ends by saying there was no king in Israel. And yet Judges opens with saying, who shall go up for us? Who will fight for us? Judah is chosen. And as the story of redemption unfolds, we know from Judah comes David. From David comes King Jesus, the one who has conquered. Revelation 5, verse 5. Weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Amen. From the beginning, hope is infused in these words. Humanity will fail. We will fail. The world is insufficient to save you. Look to Jesus. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who has fought for you, who has won, and now because of his victory over the power of sin, over the power of death, we now through him have the power to obey. Let's pray.